Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On October 13th and 14th, Fidelity Investments Canada proudly hosted an in-person event for financial advisors, featuring several Fidelity portfolio managers and subject matter experts. On today's podcast, we're bringing you one of these sessions, featuring portfolio managers Dave Way and Brett DeLay, joining moderator Rory Poole, alternative strategist. Dave and Brett both manage alternative funds at Fidelity Canada, which we'll hear more about on today's podcast. We'll first hear from Gord Thompson, VP Regional Sales for Western Canada, to further introduce our speakers. Please note, as this was originally presented as a discussion at a live event, there were a few slides displayed to the in-person audience. This podcast was recorded on October 14th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So up first today will be portfolio managers Brett DeLay and David Way. I like the, uh, the reference here to DeLay and Way. It sounds like a rock band from the early 80s. So uh, we'll have them up here on stage hosted uh, by Rory Poole, who is our subject matter expert and alternative strategist, supporting all the sales teams in promoting these products because they are so unique. We wanted to have somebody as a specialist, and he'll be here to moderate the role. Back to Way and DeLay, uh, they both joined the company. Andrew Marchese would have hired them in the mid-2000s as research analysts, and they supported, obviously, the Canadian Discipline Equity Fund. Back in 2019, as regulatory changes took place and opened up the opportunity for them to use their unique skill set to lead to a Fidelity's new liquid alternative investment. So Brett manages the market neutral alternative fund. Dave manages the long short alternative fund. So here to talk to you today about where, how they're doing and finding winners for their portfolios and capitalizing on potential losers. Uh, please welcome Brett DeLay, Dave Way and Rory Poole. Thanks, Gord. Appreciate that. Gentlemen, pleasure to start day two with the two of you. A quick public service announcement. Uh, Pat Bolland's mustache, as well as his swagger, will return to the stage for the duration of the day today after this session. Um, He's actually just sitting over there in the front row, uh, grilling me and making sure that I'm doing uh, his job effectively. But uh, some context as to why I'm up here is, uh, as Gord mentioned, I work in partnership with both These two gentlemen, as well as Dan, who you'll hear from next as a strategist or subject matter expert on our alternative products. So if you have any questions throughout the session as it pertains to alternatives more broadly or either of these two gentlemen's mandates, please feel free to submit them through the app and we'll answer them as best as we can. Guys, it's obviously been a tricky year this year in 2022 across many different major markets and asset classes. Before we get into the weeds on your respective strategies, maybe we can just kind of start with some high-level thoughts on what you're seeing out there. Brett, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, sure. And thanks, everyone, for, uh, for attending. Um, so 
You know, I think we're at a very interesting point in time in the markets. Um, when we think about what's going on, um, it's pretty tough. Inflation's rampant everywhere. Stimulus has been taken away. Housing market's rolling. Um, earnings estimates probably for many companies are too high. And so that's all bad. But it's probably nothing new to anybody here. And so I think what the key to try and figure out is, you know, the stock market is already down a lot. S&P's down mid-20s, NASDAQ's down 30. And so is this all priced in? And so I think we're at a point in time, and we're seeing it by the heightened volatility in the markets, where the market's trying to sniff out, we know everything is bad. Does it get worse? Does it stabilize? Or does it get better from here? And I think that's kind of the most important call that we're trying to make over the next few years. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's a very interesting time. It's a very crucial time. And that's, I think, kind of the most important thing going on right now. Great. Dave? Yeah, thanks. Um, so for me, if you think about the start of the year, uh, the sort of the biggest theme in my portfolio, and you can see in my top 10 holdings, uh, I was really trying to build a portfolio that would be resilient. Um, we had a lot of um, monetary and fiscal stimulus, and we had a lot of uncertainty. And so the goal of the portfolio for me was to try to own resilient companies. And on the short side, short companies that would start to show cracks. And we've really seen that kind of happen through the year. So companies like Dollarama did really well. And some companies that I was short that maybe didn't have profitability or the ability to pass on higher prices to their consumers um, would falter. And I think I would echo the statement, or sort of Brett's view, as well as what we heard yesterday, which is that we're starting to get to the point where a lot of this bad news could be factored into um, many stock prices. So a company this morning, uh, if you know the company Thule, it's those big black um, bike racks and, and um, sort of storage racks on the tops of cars. Um, a lot of people were stuck at home and doing outdoor activities and bought a lot of that stuff. Um, in the last two years, they just came out and said that we really think that sales are going to be down 25% versus 2021, which is pretty bad news. And the stock's up 3%. And so we're starting to see some of this stuff get priced in. And so it's our job as portfolio managers and with our analyst team trying to sort through sectors um, that have faced a lot of downward pressure in stock prices to try to find the companies where we can get a little bit more comfortable on a one to two year basis that um, the near term bad news is priced in and that these businesses which um, you know, appear to be suffering now could be better in a year or two. And that I feel like kind of surmises like something that was a takeaway for me yesterday was that there's this kind of resounding optimism that the team starts is really starting to feel at this point which is great to hear. Brett, we'll start with talking about your fund. Your old partner in crime, Mark Schmale, was up here yesterday and talking about how it's been few and far between in terms of those managers that have been able to generate positive returns for investors this year, and you have been one of those. So congratulations. With a volatility that is about a third of that of equities and about half that of bonds, so really speaking to the potential diversification benefits associated with your fund, can you tell us a little bit about the market neutral alternative fund and how you invest? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the market neutral alternative fund is a true market neutral fund. And so what that means is the fund is managed to a beta of zero, which is another way of saying it has zero correlation with the underlying equity markets. It has zero correlation with the underlying fixed income markets. 
Um, the goal of the fund is whether the equity markets go up, down, or sideways, is to generate returns that are not correlated in any way with what the underlying equity markets is doing. And so the fund is 100% long and 100% short for a net exposure of zero, beta of zero, correlation of zero. And so the way that I structure the fund is I use equities. Um, we have the ability to use indexes and other things. I don't. Um, and I think about the world in terms of relative valuation. So a lot of what I do is pair trading. And so a pair trade is, um, it can be numerous different things, but it's basically in a simple form, it's one stock versus another stock. If I think the outlook for a certain company um, is better or more optimistic than a, another company that's a very similar type of company, that's a pair trade, long one, short the other. And so what I mean by relative valuation is if both companies go up or down, that's actually not relevant to the returns of the portfolio. What I'm looking for is the differences in returns between the two companies. So the dream in a long-short portfolio is your long goes up and your short goes down and you generate money. That's, all, that's, that's also not necessary. Both of your longs, or your long could go up, your short could go up as well, as long as your long goes up more. Same thing on the way down. If they both go down, as long as your long goes down less than your short, you generate positive absolute returns. So the fund's structured by a series of pair trades, approximately 50 of them, um, and that's what makes the portfolio. And again, we make sure we manage our risk exposures. Um, I, don't, I try not to have a bias, so if I'm going long a growth stock, I want to go short a growth stock, long a value stock, short a value stock, and make sure that the correlation with the underlying equity markets is zero. And so one of the ways um, that I make sure, there's obviously numerous risk controls which we'll get into, that I'm doing this is when I wake up in the morning and the futures are up a lot, down a lot, assuming it wasn't earnings last night, I should have no idea about how the fund is going to perform that day because it's purely stock versus stock. It has nothing to do with the direction of the market. So it's definitely an absolute return-focused mandate. Yeah. Let's go into a little bit more depth about pair trading before we move on to Dave. And I know that we've kind of pulled up the example that we have for you. You kind of talk about these two different types of pairs that exist within the fund. There's the more direct, so oil company A versus oil company B, and then there's the more nuanced, where maybe it's similar inputs, or maybe they exhibit a high degree of correlation despite the fact that they don't exist within one sector. Can you talk a little bit about that and the, its potential application within the fund? And obviously, in order to provide a little bit of visual for folks, kind of go through the example that we have here. Okay, so let's start with the more basic direct pair, and that is a little bit more straightforward. So an example of a pair trade that I would have on in the fund would be in the airline space. Um, I'm optimistic on business travel. Business travel is coming back, <laughs> right? We're all here. Um, it's going to continue. Uh, on the other side is leisure travel. We had a big sort of windfall in leisure travel over the summer. Everybody got to finally get out, and they took their trips. But now we're back to work, <clears throat> back in school. We don't have more vacation. Hotels are expensive. Flights are expensive. I'm not as optimistic on that. So one of the pair trades that I would construct is to be long an airline that has greater exposure to business travel and short an airline that has more exposure to consumer and leisure. So again, whether the airline's space in general goes up or down is not relevant, but as long as business travel outperforms leisure, that, that kind of trade should add value to the fund. Um, another one is the example we've got here, and this is a bit more nuanced. So this is uh, an example of a pair trade that I had on in the high, high, high growth, high valuation tech space. And so these two companies, when I put this pair trade on, were both trading at the same valuation. It was like 30 times EV to sales. It was very high. 
but the growth profiles and the business models were drastically different. So MongoDB, which is a company that I was long, um, is a market leader in their space. They do data database. It's a rapidly growing space. There's no competition. They were growing like 80%, and they were basically at break-even, and they had a good balance sheet. Asana is another company. It was growing about the same, 80%, but it is a very, very crowded space they play in. Um, they do collaboration software. There's like three or four public players. There's like four or five very large privates. It's very competitive. They were burning a large, a lar- a large amount of cash, generating negative uh, cash flow margins of like 40%. So what I was getting at here is I have two companies trading at the exact same price, uh, valuation. One is a market leader, great management team, more durable growth profile, better margins. The other is the opposite of that. And so that's something I'm trying to capitalize on. If I can get different outlooks for the same price, that's a pair trade. Let's rewind back, though, for a second, because this was obviously a very lucrative trade over the period. Um, but there was a point in time in the fall of last year where the pair was going against you. You can see that the short was up a lot more than that of the long. Can you kind of talk about how you manage through those instances, or can we get inside your brain to kind of go through your thought process around what you're thinking when those do come about? So one thing that's important is risk control. So as long as your position sizing is appropriate, you can stomach these kind of temporary points where potentially the trade isn't working. Um, But I had high confidence in the fundamentals of the company. Our analysts covered both stocks. Uh, He was... He liked one. He didn't like the other. Uh, His numbers were what was showing up. So I thought, okay, nothing has changed here in the thesis. Over time, this should should play out. Um, And it did. And and one thing I want to highlight, right, is to remember what this fund is about. It's not about the direction of the underlying stock. And so both stocks were bad. High-growth tech has been terrible. We all know that. MongoDB was not a great stock. It went down 20%. But Asana was a much, much worse stock. It went down 60%. So time is definitely important. Time is very important, yeah. Before we move on to Dave, just to wrap up, um, kind of knowing the product structure and how you've articulated it, um, your approach, the general lower volatility uh, profile that you uh, might get with this product, like where does this potentially in your mind help an investor? So I think, I think we have to think about market neutral as almost like a different asset class. We use equities but it doesn't trade with the stock market. It doesn't trade with the fixed income market. It has zero correlation, and we make sure of that. So it's another way to achieve absolute returns using relative valuation. Um, the volatility profile, is, as Rory mentioned, is you know, far below um, the underlying stock market, far below the bond market. I think it's something that belongs in everybody's portfolio. Great. Dave, let's move to you and talk a little bit about your product and process Um, Obviously, a very different product um, from that of what Brett's doing in that it is more of a a traditional equity long-short portfolio, Um, but your results have also been fantastic. To start things off, tell us a little bit about the fund and what you feel kind of makes you unique as an investor. Sure. So if Brett's fund is a market-neutral fund and uncorrelated to the markets, uh, my fund is a directional long-short fund. So Typically, what you'll see the portfolio do is if a client puts $100 into the fund, what I'm trying to do is go out and buy 50 or 60 of Fidelity's very best ideas and my own uh, best ideas in the fund for sort of $130. And I'm going out and I'm shorting 
$30 worth of stocks that I think are going to underperform over time. And so, like Brett, I'm trying to have a long portfolio that outperforms and a short portfolio that underperforms the market to try to widen the opportunity set of the types of investments I can look at. Um, And I'm using individual securities just like Brett. Um, There's no additional leverage in the fund. And I think the fund's been sort of running in a sort of a 0.8 type beta. So it is exposed to the market. um, But by having a long and a short portfolio, I'm able to attack the markets um, in a more expanded way than would be available in a long-only fund. So when I talked about resilience earlier, one of the things that I was looking at as we were heading into 2022 is, you know, what are the what are the individual companies that we can own that are going to have earnings growth, a resilient business model, and a similarly sort of bright future on a one to two-year basis? And if you're a long-only investor, that's kind of where the story ends. But as somebody who can go out and short stocks. We had a number of uh, opportunities to short companies where we felt that the prospects for the business were much worse than what was priced into the stocks. So I can actually move beyond a long-only portfolio and actually go after um, these stocks and short them to generate additional returns for for shareholders. And we have an example of that, I I believe, as well. Um, So I'm going to get you to, to comment on this, but I know that I mean, in talking with the both of you over the course of the past two years, and really a lot of portfolio managers that were up here yesterday, there's so many businesses that were impacted by the pandemic in a myriad of different ways, some positive, some negative. Um, Can you kind of talk about the example that we have here for you, Dave, um, and how it kind of further conceptualizes what you potentially might look for in a short? Yeah, absolutely. And I picked this one um, because its headquarters are in Tempe, Arizona. So we're not a, we're a short drive from uh, the company. And I don't see anyone from the company here. So I feel good talking about it. Um, and I also picked it because it highlights the real need as a, somebody who short stocks to be patient. And so this is a company that I looked at when it IPO'd. Uh, it IPO'd at $15. Um, I had some significant concerns about the unit economics of the business, like how they make money or whether they'll be able to make money. And I was also bothered by the fact that the chairman has a uh, securities fraud conviction. Um, typically, they don't, they, they, don't, they don't put red flags on the covers of prospectuses very often. Uh, but this was one that really bothered me uh, because I probably don't want to invest alongside a convicted fraudster. And on, and, on, and on top of it, there was a lot of related party transactions. This is a business that um, sells used cars online um, in the U.S. And the chairman had a business selling used cars and was um, intricately involved from a business perspective with the public company. And so I watched this company over time. It went public at $15. I think it, it sold down to like $12 or $13 the day of the IPO. And I felt really smart for, for not buying it. And then through COVID, obviously buying cars was challenging because of supply issues. And it was challenging because it was harder to go to a dealership. And the company really demonstrated significant revenue growth. Uh, and the stock went from like $12 over time to the starting point of this chart, which is around $300. Uh, It was a massive stock. And the thing that happened is, and this is kind of a bad thing for a business, as you grow, if you lose more money, it doesn't put you on the path to profitability. And so 
it was a market that was rewarding revenue growth. So I was patient. I stayed on the sidelines. I kept doing calls with the company. I talked to the company you know, every nine months for about three years. Uh, I actually met with the CEO at this hotel uh, three years ago uh, where we talked about the business. And there, be, there came a period as we got into the second half of last year where I felt like enough's enough. I thought that supply chain uh, challenges in the auto industry would get better, um, which would put downward pressure on used car prices, which would be bad for their business. And so I built a short position over time. And you can see, similar to Brett's example, the stock actually initially you know, outperformed the market through that period. And I started the position at a, pretty, at a relatively small level because I, was, I had high conviction about where the stock could go in a couple of years, and I had less conviction about where it would go in the short term. But as the stock started to continue to appreciate into this you know, really big blow-off peak, um, I was able to build my position as a short seller at uh, some, somewhat higher prices. So the stock went up 20% through the time I built my position. Um, my average cost of shorting this, or average price that I shorted the stock, was you know, relatively high. And then as we saw, you can see on, on the bar chart, you know, very quickly the story started to unravel. People still aren't worried about the securities fraud conviction, which is sort of beyond me. But what was better is that the challenging unit economics became more painfully clear to investors. And this is a company that needs to continually come to market for equity and debt funding. And as companies lose increasing amounts of money and require funding from the market, um, this is usually a recipe uh, for a significant blow-up. So you can see the stock. I think it's trading in the high teens today. So I shorted the stock around $320. It's like $18 or $19 today. And this is an example where as you see the market start to appreciate the unit economics that you've seen all along, um, you can make significant amounts of money as a short seller. How do you determine when to cover? Like, obviously, this was an example where um, it was a net beneficial in terms of performance to the product. But inevitably, stocks go against you as well. How does that factor into your, your mind and process? Yeah, so when you start to get to these lower levels, you have to ask yourself, like, what are the odds that somebody buys this company? And again, a company that loses lots of money is typically not an attractive acquisition target. Uh, but sometimes the company has a brand. And in the case of Carvana, they do have significant debt outstanding, and that's something that gives you a margin of safety as a short seller because you know, maybe the company is worth its brand or it has some kind of you know, operating assets that another strategic acquirer would be interested in, or maybe it's just kind of like washed out to a price where you don't see any downside. So you kind of put a short into two buckets. Like, is this a stock that I think is going to zero? Like, I have a number of stocks that have been in the portfolio where my target price is zero dollars. And so at that point, you're looking to cover like 25 cents if you can. Um, but there are other stocks where you just think that the market needs to see the business for what it is. And then you get to a point where the market realizes that. And you're constantly trying to feed the portfolio with new ideas. You might just come up with an idea that has more downside than this one. And so you, you would cover a short at that point and enter a new position uh, that you think has better risk reward. Great. Before we move on, similar question to what we asked Brett. Um, in terms of your process, your product, what you're trying to achieve, where does this potentially fit for an investor? And is that something that you think about when you're managing the product? Yeah, so I think the way that I think about the fund is 
I have 100% of my personal assets invested in this fund. Um, I was telling some people at dinner last night, if you want to kind of get inside my head and think about how I manage this fund, is I have an 11-year-old son with autism, and you know my family's um, assets need to be there to support him for a very long time. So <clears throat> I'm really looking to compound my capital and our capital as fellow unit holders as much as I can over a 10-year period, and you know 10 to 15 years long term. And the way that I know that it can be a successful outcome is that I, I'm able to stick to my process and take whatever the market gives me because you know, I'm a style agnostic investor. I don't lean on you know, growth or value as a, a way of filtering the world into an investment portfolio. I'm really trying to invest through whatever environment comes our way. And we're in a period of great uncertainty. And I think where this fund can fit is you know, if you have that longer term perspective, but you're really worried about what can get in your way in the short run with, through this period of volatility, I think it's really great to have a fund that has demonstrated lower volatility than the market and excess returns. So, you know, I benefit from an expanded opportunity set being able to go long and short stocks. But I think what gives me comfort for my own, you know, portfolio having a full allocation to this is that over time I should benefit from, you know, all the innovation we see in the world filtering through to GDP growth and higher stock prices over time and being able to use that filter and approach to generate returns with lower volatility. That's great. Yeah, that last part, like lower, lower volatility equity investing, I think is probably appealing to many investors out there. Let's switch gears a little bit, talk a little bit about the team. Gord mentioned both of you started at Fidelity in 2008. Both of you are products of, uh, of the analyst system and are now running your own standalone alone products. And while much of the research that really underpins these products is similar to that of the rest of our complex, it's also a little bit different. So how do you utilize the research? How do you utilize each other in terms of idea sharing? And can you maybe talk about any of those resources that are very unique to these particular products? Brett, maybe we'll go to you. So, you know, I'd like to talk about maybe it's not unique to these products, but potentially the way I use it is unique. And so, um, you know, as I mentioned, like I focus on pair trading. And so what that leads to is, you know, relative differences in whether it's, you know, business fundamentals or valuation amongst similar types of stocks. And so we have a, a large analyst team here at Fidelity. The analysts are charged with covering a sector and rating all the stocks within that sector on a scale of buy to sell. So what they are doing is looking for relative differences amongst similar types of stocks. That sounds exactly like a pair trade to me. So I, I look at our research, and you know, I try and identify our buys, identify our sells, understand the thesis, and if it's a thesis I agree with, that's how I can start constructing pair trades, buying our buys and selling our sells. So I'm just taking this process that we've been doing for years and years and years, and I did as an analyst for many years, Dave did as well, and just structuring a fund around it. And so uh, when I'm thinking about pairs and shorts, I'm not always looking for a company that I think is going to zero or is a fraud. I could be short a very high-quality company if I think the valuation is wrong or potentially the revenue outlook is misunderstood um, and being long a, a higher-quality company against it. So I'm not necessarily looking for the frauds and the accounting issues, but I'm looking for relative differences amongst different types of stocks, or sorry, similar types of stocks. And that's probably further rationale as to why you don't use synthetics within this product. That's right. There's a lot, lot available in the equity market to do. Dave, what about yourself? How do you use the research? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's a similar process to Brett, but also 
one of the things that might kind of surprise some people in the audience is that beyond Brett, Dan, and I, who short stocks in Fidelity and have products available to Canadian investors, there actually is a broader team of uh, portfolio managers within sort of the Fidelity world who also short stocks and have been doing so for more than a decade. So there's a, there's an, a wider portfolio management team that is available, and we collaborate on, on ideas um, and share sort of our positions. And underneath that, there's also a team of dedicated short-selling analysts um, positioned globally who are able to focus 100% of their time on coming up with uh, short ideas. And that's really helpful as a portfolio manager because it allows you to find conviction in stocks where you may not have the full picture on your own. So a few of the stocks that I've shorted over time have included uh, businesses that operate in China but are listed in the U.S. And having somebody sitting in Asia who's able to keep you up to date on what's happening in the local operating market is a really powerful tool to increase your conviction and position size so you can have more impact on the fund uh, on an idea that might already be in your portfolio. And then beyond that, there's a number of independent research shops that are not household names. They don't um, have big Twitter accounts uh, trying to press their ideas, but they might be a team of four or five very serious short-selling research uh, analysts working for a firm that we're able to have access to through Fidelity who focus on you know, kind of the more boring stuff, finding the stocks that over one to two years are going to have a revenue issue or a margin problem or they have accounting uh, issues that are underappreciated by the market. And to me, like the ideal outcome is you have this the, sort of the independent research people that we talk to, they are really interested in the short idea. Our analyst has a fundamental sell rating on the stock. And through the PM collaboration, we're able to short this stock across a number of portfolios. That's typically when you know you've found a winner. So um, I would just say that we have a really big bench behind us being at Fidelity, and it allows us to express our own individual styles and build our individual portfolios with uh, a lot of support. It's quite the mosaic, for sure. These conferences are always great. We get to hear from so many different unique investment minds, approaches at Fidelity when it comes to managing assets on behalf of our clients. I'm curious, just before we, we move on to the next topic, I mean, who are your kind of circles of influence, be it within Fidelity or outside from an investment standpoint? Brett? Um, <clears throat> this could be a very long list, um, but it's all internal. Um, so I think we've got a number of different PMs that do a number of different things exceptionally well, and I try and take cues and lessons from all of them. You've met many of them over the course of the last day. You're going to meet a couple more um, in the next few hours. And so you know, I could go down the list. Maybe I should, but I won't. Um, you know, We talk about Mark. Mark is investing in change, but more importantly, changing your mind. Um, you know, Andrew, who spoke yesterday, is, he's a student of the market. He understands cycles. He knows what the playbook is at a certain point in time in the cycle. Um, everybody has their special unique skills. Dave, he mentioned um, the Carvana business model. I think Dave is our most talented person at truly understanding the business model of a company, whether the stock has a high multiple or not. Does the business make sense? Talked about Carvana on the short side. I think as an analyst, um, Dave was really early on identifying that Dollarama is something magical. And you know, I think now the market's there. It's really expensive, but it, it wasn't. So. Um, the list goes on and on. Um, in terms of external influences, none. Um, 
Look, I think, you know, if you read investor letters or whatever, like that's like looking at somebody's Instagram picture. It's fake. It's bogus. I don't want to see the Christmas card with the nice sweaters and everybody smiling. I want to live <laughs> in the mess and the kids screaming and the stains and the sweatpants. And that's, that's where you learn. So I just keep focused on what we do here. Dave? Yeah, I think the, as an analyst, you have to service uh, portfolio managers with different styles. And one of the great gifts of working at Fidelity is that as an analyst, you have to look at different stocks that might be interesting to different portfolio managers, but you often have to look at the same stock using a bunch of different lenses. So I always think about it as like having uh, you know, a, a rack of different hats on the wall, and like each time you look at a stock, you have to put on like you know, the Dan Deep Value hat or the Mark Growth hat. And I think that's what really helped me develop as a more style agnostic investor, I, I, I vividly think about that sort of notion of like, okay, this is a, a, you know, a value situation. How would a value manager look at this? And then how would a growth manager look at growth stocks? And you know, Brett is a very talented technology investor, um, and it's something that I get to lean on. I get a free resource of somebody who's been around the sector for a decade um, looking at these stocks and knows all the technology stacks and the ecosystems that are really important to understand to make money as an investor. Um, external influences, when I got really interested in, in doing a long short fund, one of the things that I was able to do was reach out to people who have very long-term track records. Similar to what Brett was saying, not the person who has the splashy report, but the person who has been grinding out really good returns for 20 years. And um, so people like you know, John Hempton in Australia, um, Stan Druckenmiller, who's potentially the greatest investor of all time, consistent returns over 30 years. You know, he's 60 years old and is still working 14 hours a day. Um, you know, that passion for the business, I think to be a successful PM, you have to be really passionate about stock picking. And I think that's something for me that I really try to, to reach out to some people outside the firm to understand better. And one of the great things is that short sellers are not very um, popular people in the world, um, and they're often attacked by um, other investors and the public. So when you reach out and say, hey, can I, like, talk to you for 30 minutes to understand your process and how you make money and things you wish you'd known when you were earlier in your career, they're actually often very happy to pick up the call, uh, pick up the phone and talk to you. And so that was very formative in terms of how I was developing my own style, not just as a long investor, but also as a short seller. And it's amazing to me how much of this information people will give away now. There's a lot of podcasts you can look at as an investor. And if you're interested, I can um, you know, feel free to find me and I can share a couple of my favorites. But there's a lot of information out there, um, a lot of influences. But at the end of the day, um, and this is when I was at Wharton, I got to have lunch with Warren Buffett um, and I sat beside him. And one of his key messages to me at that time was, A, that gravy is really good. He had like a, a roast beef plate and it was honestly like an inch deep in gravy. Um, couldn't believe it. It's amazing he's still alive. Um, <laughs> and... But he said, you have to be yourself. You, like, everybody else is taken. And if you want to be a really good investor, you have to really dig down deep and understand who you are, um, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what your biases are, and try to work every day to make your strong muscles stronger and ensure that your weak muscles don't hurt you. We're going to transition to the first audience question, and we're on the topic of spheres of influences, so let's talk about Reddit. It's a 
become pretty influential in our world in many cases and in many different ways to consider as being an investor. So maybe if you can talk a little bit about how you approach some of the more highly talked about stocks out there, if you will, particularly when it comes to looking at them as potential short candidates and and trying to navigate things like squeezes, gamma risk, anything that comes along with that. I don't know who wants to take that first. Go ahead. Um, so we have, a lot, we have a lot of tools available to us um, for specifically short-selling risk. We have some specialized software. We have risk reports. Um, we get a cost of borrow um, from our prime brokers every day. And so these are all tools that we can use to identify, you know, is a stock heavily shorted? So that's almost the same as a long that is, you know, super expensive and everybody loves and everybody's buying it. It becomes a dangerous situation. And so um, it's something for me, I monitor that very closely before I put in any trade on what are these metrics. And if it is something that has a high cost of borrow and is heavily shorted in general, um, I move along. Um, there's, there's, you know, an avenue for success and there's an avenue for a pathway that could be very, very difficult. Um, and so it's not a place that I tend to play in. Yeah, so I think, so I love Reddit. Um, it's, uh, from my information gathering uh, perspective, I have like, I'm really interested in like almost anything. And so I've been on Twitter for like 15, or like 10, 15 years. Um, I, was, I, had, I was very early to get on the platform and, you know, I don't post anything, but I read a lot. And Reddit's a similar thing. Like, you know, I had a problem with a small appliance. I posted like what my issue was and somebody like, help me solve the problem. And it's, it's a really interesting community. You can find whatever your interests are. And, you know, obviously Wall Street Bets is, uh, you know, a subreddit that gained a lot of popularity. And one of the things that I try to do as an investor is I try to make an investment decision that rational investors will appreciate over time. And I can actually, I, I think I have a much better ability to predict rational behavior than irrational behavior. And what, like my, one of my biggest filters when I short a stock is, am I going to wake up the next day and this is up 100% for some reason? And in early 2021, we saw you know, this phenomenon play out. And I actually was long a stock that um, was a, a deep value play. And I thought over four years, you could maybe double your money in you know, this broken shopping mall company. And the stock like doubled in three, three weeks because they were just choosing all these old economy stocks to see what would work. And I wasn't short any of the, the stocks really that were, were featured in there because you just want to play away from you know, big crowded trades. Options can play, I won't, the details don't matter, but options could play a really uh, big role in setting stock prices because it introduces leverage into uh, an investor's perspective. And I, I just want to stay away from that because, you know, if I go back to the portfolio's overall goal, it's higher returns with lower volatility. And those stocks tend to add a lot of volatility. And it's hard to have conviction when you're fighting sort of irrational um, investors. Thanks, guys. Let's take another one. Um, do either of the funds have market cap restrictions? How does this play out in long versus short portfolios? So I think talking a little bit about liquidity, does it differ when you're looking at longs versus that of shorts? And kind of where do you find yourself most often in the cap stack? Um, so the fund does not, my fund does not have a restriction on market cap. Um, I probably tend to play much more in sort of like the mid, the mid to smid area. Um, there's a few large caps in there um, on the tech side and industrials. 
Um, and in terms of how does this play out long versus short, like, like I mentioned, what I'm trying to do is like pair off similar types of risk exposures. So the risk exposure of, say, owning Google versus shorting a you know, super high volatile $1 billion market cap high growth software company, they're very different. And so in, if I had a trade like that on, I'm not actually isolating true stock picking. There's a lot of factor exposure there. So I do tend to keep it, you know, all these things uh, sort of on an equal basis and hedge them out. So it's not something that I would pair against each other if they're dramatically different. Dave? Uh, no market cap restrictions. I think, I think my fund's holdings are on average are about you know, 50% of the size of the large cap indices that the funds benchmark against. So I also tend to play in companies where we're able to come up with a differentiated investment perspective on the company, um, which is really important to finding those businesses that, you know, number one, because they're smaller, maybe they have like a really profitable niche that they operate in or a really interesting product that, you know, is expanding. Um, There was a company that um, I own that, they make um, standby generators. And um, this was typically viewed as like a hurricane company where every time there was a hurricane, their sales went like this, and then the next year the sales went like that. And it's really morphed into a company that is providing, you know, in some ways, like solutions to some of the climate challenges we're seeing um, around intermittent power availability like we see in California. And this was a company that had like no dealers in California three years ago. California is like 30 million people. It's a huge market. And if you can find a business that's underappreciated, that has like a lot of white space, either from a geographic or product perspective, you can often find businesses that are able to grow faster than GDP over time, um, have earnings growth that's faster than the market expects, and uh, returns that would not be available in a you know, larger cap, more followed, more mature business. Great. Dave, I'm going to go back to you. Um, not so much applicable to Brett, but question that we always get when you talk about a long-short product is gross versus net exposure. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you manage it within the fund and what expectations might be uh, for that of potential investors out there. Yeah, I think as a a portfolio manager, you're always looking at your fund from sort of two perspectives. One is, you know, from a top-down perspective, what's my net exposure? And you know, I think it's really important to reiterate from a risk perspective, you know, we have the same risk reporting. And in fact, we have enhanced risk reporting relative to our long-only fund. So, you know, whenever I want it, I can get a, you know, a 50-page stack showing me all of my different exposures, different risk levels, et cetera. And it's very important as a PM to sort of follow where your bottom-up analysis gets you to from a, a portfolio perspective. And on a bottom-up basis, like, ideally, my net exposure is a, a combination of the two. I'm looking at the market opportunities, you know, is... Um, is this a period to be really fully exposed to the market, or is this a period to um, have a bit more conservatism um, in the fund and really try to maybe have a lower net exposure so you're not as exposed to the market, but have a higher gross exposure, so bigger long portfolios, bigger short portfolios, to try to really attack the market for alpha if you see a real opportunity in perhaps like a sideways market. That's what's really, I think, attractive about these funds is that we can still play offense in a market that might be, you know, trending sideways or, you know, facing some downward volatility by using the short portfolio and making the short portfolio bigger to try to attack the market for returns. I I think personally, just speaking with a lot of advisors, like net exposure seems to be one of the mis one in my point of from my point of view, like one of the most misconceived metrics out there. 
in the sense that if you're running at 80% in terms of net exposure, there's this foregone conclusion that if the market goes down 10, that you're going down 8. And I don't necessarily believe that that's the case, especially when you're running a product um, that is very focused on on idiosyncratic or stock-specific risk. Brett, I'm going to ask you about the daunting term of leverage. I think that it's scary for a lot of end investors out there because they don't necessarily understand it and how it can be potentially utilized in a in a good way within a portfolio. And the media obviously um, tends to frame it in in much more of a negative manner. So maybe you can talk about like how do you use leverage in your fund um, and how is it actually contributing to to what you're trying to achieve? Yeah. So the definition of leverage for the market neutral alternative fund is 200% gross. And so what that means is for every dollar that uh, comes into the fund, we invest a dollar and we short a dollar. So the net exposure is 100 long, 100 short. It all nets out to zero. And so that's the technical term is 200. We don't add any leverage on top of that. And we keep the gross exposure at zero in a, at a very, very tight band. It's how we keep our correlation to the underlying markets at nil. Um, so the way that leverage is used in this manner is it's actually um, used as a uh, a risk tool because we're hedging exposures, hedging the other side via the short book, and it, it has actually led to lower volatility. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting term, but the way it's applied in this fund is maybe different than what the term kind of would lead you to believe. Agreed. And I think that that's one key takeaway for everyone in here, and it applies to Dan's fund as well, um, who you're going to hear from next, is that uh, there's no cash borrowing um, within these products. All of the leverage is created, as Brett mentioned, through Short-selling securities and the potential redeployment of, of some of that cash in, in certain instances. Dave, I'm going to ask you about ESG. You approach ESG or can approach ESG investing in a different fashion than a lot of the industry right now in that you kind of are able to look at it through two different lenses. Can you talk a little bit about that? And is that an area that, based on how big of a theme that is across uh, across markets, like, is that something where you see potential opportunity moving forward? Yeah, abs- absolutely. And so I look at ESG investing from two different lenses, the long side and the short side. On the long side, you know, decarbonization and sort of related initiatives to the sort of environmental and social issues, I think it's pretty clearly a long-term trend of increased spending. Mark talked about it yesterday, and I would echo his sentiment that this is a very hard-to-ignore um, long-term driver of opportunity. I think a big part of you know, some GDP growth and an innovation is going to happen in this field. And so you know, I collaborate really closely with Hugo Lavalle, who I think is speaking later, um, and he is uh, very passionate about this part of the market. And we have the benefit of you know, being able to talk to each other and share ideas on the, on the long side where the fund can benefit over time from this growth. And on the short side, one of the things that um, I'm really passionate about is uh, a bucket of shorting that I call ESG detractors. Um, So these are people or companies um, that maybe are are trying to take advantage of this influx of capital into a very exciting long-term growth sector. Um, But instead of having a business model, a team of engineers, patents, the kinds of things that actually can support long-term growth in a business. They might just have you know, a charismatic CEO, a fancy PowerPoint presentation, and a short-term plan to separate investors from their money. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was short a company that went public 
uh, I think it was a billion dollar market cap, and they had, um, you know, they're operating in renewable fuel, and they had like six people with science degrees who worked at the company. And I just don't think you can support a business that's worth $2 billion with six people. And there was a number of other uh, red flags that um, came up through my due diligence that led to this company being a short. And I mention this because it's a team effort. And so when I did my work and I identified it as a short, it can you know, help Hugo uh, avoid buying stocks that you know, would fit into this bucket and, uh, or vice versa where he can help me um, you know, avoid shorting stocks that he thinks has real potential. And on the social side, very simply, I think that companies have to pay a lot more attention to social issues now. And for all the things that are bad about social media, I think one of the strengths that it offers is that it is allowed, it's, it enables a bunch of like disparate voices to coalesce around a very strong message about company behavior, um, issues within companies that need to be addressed. And what I'm really trying to identify is not anything that like, you know, passes or fails my own personal moral filter, but by focusing on this, while other investors don't focus on this, it can help me identify issues that will lead a company to either have slower revenue growth or higher expenses in the future, things that are going to drive share prices over time because eventually that's what investors really care about is the outlook for earnings for a business. And by focusing on this area that other people don't pay much attention to, I can identify this change before it shows up in stuff that other investors care about. Interesting stuff. Guys, I think we're pretty much at time here. Um, It probably makes sense to end end this in a similar fashion to the way that we started, but I would say to both of you in a difficult year that's been 2022, congratulations on the great success with the two products. Um, And I know that the firm as well as our clients are thrilled to have you as important parts of our ever-growing alternatives lineup. Guys, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.